Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Last talk, sliders in the belly. You can't, you can't fall asleep. All right, look, if you fall asleep, we'll all just assume you're having some vision. It's like you're like St. Joseph. We'll leave you alone. Just don't start snoring. That's the dead giveaway that you're not in an ecstasy. You're, you're actually just a, a loser who fell asleep. So, so true, true story. This is, this is a real story that I've, 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 I wanted to share this. and I've wanted to share it on Holy Thursday because it's the perfect context. But you can't share this story on Holy Thursday. But... Uh, when I went to the Holy Land the first time in 2017, it was with a group of, of 10 other priests. We had an awesome, awesome time. And uh, the day that we, we did the, the, from Palm Sunday Road down to the upper room through the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, it was a really full day. It was an exhausting day. And uh, we had a big lunch and, a, you know, I mean, just bellies full of food. I mean, just like you guys right now, we had sliders and shawarma and, you know, falafel. Anyway, we joined up with this Mexican group of pilgrims for a holy hour in the Basilica of All Nations in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. So they were with their, their bishop, and, uh, and I, I speak Spanish you know, to a certain degree, and I can understand it pretty well. So we're all sitting in these chairs surrounding the altar by, um, by the Blessed Sacrament exposed on the altar. And, and in front of the altar, there's this exposed bedrock. And it's, it's according to tradition, this is the rock upon which Jesus falls in his agony, that he's bleeding and crying out, Father, take this cup from me. The bishop's there and he's preaching and we're sitting there. It's about eight, nine o'clock at night after a full day. And I'm listening to him and I'm just taking it all in. I can understand what he's saying. But you know, when you're translating, it's, it's a lot of mental energy to be locked into it, right? So, so I'm there and I, I eventually just like was closing my eyes, listening to the bishop. And then I kind of stopped listening to the bishop. <laughs> And then I fell asleep <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> yeah. Could you not spend one hour with me <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane? And I woke up laughing, thinking, unbelievable of all the places <laughs> to fall asleep in a holy hour. No, Lord, I cannot do this. So I have great compassion on those who just fall asleep listening to, you know, talk. So, Anyway, because I fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's a, you can't share that on Holy Thursday. You're supposed to be a little somber, you know? You can't, you can't, be, you can't do that one. So there you go. All right. So um, like I said, uh, that group of us, we were in the Holy Land just, uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, boy, it was really awesome. It was, it was really awesome. You got to go to the places where Jesus ministered, where Jesus... Where he lived, you go to Capernaum, there's a sign outside of Capernaum that says, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. You're like, unbelievable. Um, there's a lot of things in the Holy Land where the, you know, the historians say things like, we're pretty sure it was in this area. Like it was probably in this general vicinity. It was probably on this mountain. And then there's other places in the Holy Land where they're like, it was right here, right? It happened right here. He was born right here. This is the cave, or this is the crop of rock that is now Golgotha, where he was crucified. It was here. This is the tomb. Those sorts of things. And it just gives you chills. Like, this is, this is the place where Jesus 
where Jesus reinstituted Peter after his denials, right? Walking by the Sea of Galilee, come have breakfast, right? Simon, do you love me? That whole scene. You can go visit that spot. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like, this is the vista. This is what it all looked like. This is what it all looked like. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. As we were walking around the Holy Land, again, this time for me, like, and I was looking, like, Jesus is not there. Like, he's not, he's not still there. Like, you go to Capernaum, it's the town of Jesus, but Jesus isn't walking by in, like, a robe. Like, he's not, he's not there. And that's obvious. That's obvious. But here's what I want to drive home this point. Remember what the, the angel said to the women on the morning of the resurrection when they came to the tomb looking for his body. The angel says, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was dead. Was dead. It's a very interesting phrase, right? Was dead. He is risen. He is not here. He's not here. His body's not there. He's not here among us anymore in his humanity. He's among us in his risen and glorified humanity. It's a totally different way of being among us. So here's the thing that we have to reckon with, because I think maybe we're not conscious of this, but oftentimes we can think that as disciples in the 21st century, like it would have been so great, wouldn't it have been to have been one of those first disciples to be interacting with Jesus at the Sea of Galilee, to be there at that breakfast, to be at the Last Supper, to see him in the flesh. Are we just gypped out of those experiences? The answer is no. The answer is no, because Jesus says something crazy he says something very crazy before his ascension. He says to you, I have to go. It is better for you that I go. Like, how could it be better for us if you left? How could it be better? He says, if I don't go, I cannot send to you the consoler, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Because what happens in Jesus' passion, death, resurrection, and ascension and through the sending of the Spirit, that Jesus goes from being an external reality that is in a particular place in time. When he was in Capernaum, he wasn't in Galilee. When he was in Galilee, he wasn't in Jerusalem. There's only a certain number of people that he could be present to. But when he departs in the ascension and sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Sonship, the Spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit that conforms us to Jesus himself, the love of God goes from being an external reality to an internal indwelling reality. So that when, like, wherever you go, you are not separated from the love of God. This is the thing that I think we missed big time as a church when COVID hit. We shut down the churches. People were separated from the sacraments. And many people felt, I am separated from access to Jesus. In one sense, that's true. You're separated from the sacramental presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. But it is not true that you are separate from the love of God. He's dwelling in you at all times. Dwelling in you at all times. St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, she says, I carry heaven within me. Because at our baptism, God himself enters our hearts that do you not know, Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are where God dwells. Where does God dwell in you? He dwells in you like heat in hot water, which is to say everywhere. In particular, your heart, in your heart, in your heart. Whew. So let's put some things together. 
where does the encounter with Jesus, like the living Jesus speaking, breathing, consoling the powerful Jesus, where does that encounter, where does that relationship unfold today in our hearts? The heart has been the missing piece of evangelization in the church for the last 60 years. In the last 60 years of the church, we've had more catechesis, more teaching, more programs than ever before in the history of the church, and yet discipleship has plummeted. It's in a nosedive. Why? Because we're ignoring the heart. The place of encounter is the heart. Where we have relationship with Jesus is the heart. Believe me, I love catechesis. I love theology. But all of that stuff, apart from the heart, is pointless. It's pointless. We have to recover the heart. Have to recover the heart. And do not think for a second, when I speak of the heart, that I'm speaking of like, you know, this sort of land of make-believe, this mushy land of things that aren't real. That's not true. This is what the catechism says about the heart. Listen to this. The heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. According to the Semitic or biblical expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision deeper than our psychic drives. It is the place of truth where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter. Because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of covenant. When you hear the word covenant, think marriage. When God establishes covenant, he's establishing a marital type relationship with his people. The heart is where that marriage unfolds. It's where that relationship unfolds. It's where the living, breathing, risen Jesus wants to interact with you. And again, if you ain't in touch with your heart, you ain't in touch with the place where Jesus wants to speak. We have to recover the heart. We have to recover the heart. Or listen to this from Gaudium et Spes, one of the Vatican II documents about the heart. That man plunges into the depths of fantasy whenever, I'm so sorry, he plunges into the depths of what? Reality. Reality. He plunges into the depths of reality whenever he enters into his own heart. God who probes the heart awaits him there. There he discerns his proper destiny beneath the eyes of God. The man plunges into the depths of reality whenever he enters his own heart. It's not escapism. It's not fantasy. It's not make-believe. It's not made up. It's entering into reality. There's nothing more real than God, right? God is reality. He is reality. And you enter into reality when you enter your heart. Why? Because that's where he's waiting. That's where he's dwelling. He plunges into the depths of reality whenever he enters his own heart. So what we want to do for this final conference here is what, one of the things I want to do is I want to let Jesus have the final word. So again, I'm going to speak for a while, uh, probably not as long as the last two. I'm going to speak for a while, then I'm, I'm going to invite all of us to head upstairs for just, again, a time of, of being with Jesus um, in adoration as brothers. We're not going to have any formal ending to this. Um, there's no formal ending. I'm going to just roll right into the five o'clock mass, so I'm, you'll, I'll just disappear and I'll get ready for mass. No formal ending, and we'll let Jesus speak and have the final word. So what I want to do is I want to connect some dots between what we've already established so far. And again, I just want to thank you for giving the time to being here. 
Like, it just blesses me so much that there are so many of you here, and you are, like, I know so many of you are just such good men, and I'm so blessed to be your priest. So it's just awesome for us to be here this afternoon. I think we're blessed that you're our Oh, thanks, Jim. Thanks, man. Thanks. All right, so let's go back to our boy Fulton Sheen. The world's greatest need, he says, the world's greatest need is great men. And what is a great man? A titan of industry, a powerful executive. No, a great man is a saintly man. That's, that's what a really great man is, right? You ask the question, what is a human person supposed to be? The answer is not necessarily a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, a manager, a, a worker. That's not necessarily what we are supposed to be. That's, those are things that we end up doing. But what we are all supposed to be at the end of this thing called life is a saint, or at least on the way to sanctity. We're supposed to be saints. And Pope Benedict puts it this way. What is a saint? A saint is someone who has let themselves be pierced by God's beauty. That's a saint. Someone who's been pierced by God's beauty. Let the Lord in. We need men who are striving after holiness. We need, we need men to be in this posture before God. And I know when you come to adoration, so many of you are so faithful to holy hour times. You come to adoration, I know it's easy to just be like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'll just pray a rosary. Nothing wrong with praying a rosary. Someone said to me not too long ago, like, Father, do you not like the rosary? You're always harping against the rosary. I have nothing against the rosary. My problem with the rosary is when we're just saying words and not praying. There's a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference between saying prayers and praying. We can use the rosary to distract ourselves from actually being in this posture before God. Come before God with your heart wide open. Your heart wide open. Begin to learn and consistently receive from the heart of God. That paper that I gave you, it's, it's a, I think it's a very great helpful formula for how to engage God in the silence. Becoming aware of what's in your heart, telling God all about it, listening for how God responds, receiving it, drinking it in. Like it, those are the dance steps of relationship with God. Like my heart is craving for love. Your heart is craving for love and, and, and the kind of love that only God can supply. Again, Jesus really meant it when he established the great commandment when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That there's a hierarchy of goods here. There's a hierarchy of loves. Vertically has to be first. The vertical beam has to be first of our relationship with God, letting him flood our hearts. Again, I cannot live today on yesterday's graces or the graces from a year ago, or from the graces from when I was in high school, or whenever it was. I need fresh grace from you today, Father. Let me experience love from you, right? And then from that, flowing out of that, on the horizontal dim dimension comes all the ways that we can give and receive love. But that has to be first. That has to be first, right? So what do we need to receive? What do we need to receive? Healing. I think sometimes we think that that healing is this sort of like, okay, I'm just going to get through this healing thing and then I'll have my relationship with God. The whole relationship is healing. Jesus is the savior, right? Though I have come to call the sick, is what he says. I've come to call the sick. There's no one more sick than fallen human beings. We are wounded. We are sick. 
We've taken our hungers to all sorts of places, the wrong places. I, this is one of the fascinating things I learned in the Holy Land, that we, we were passing through this one area of the desert where we were seeing these Bedouin shepherds. And the Bedouin shepherds, good shepherds, have their sheep out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And that just seems so contrary to me. Like, why would, the good she- why would good shepherds have their sheep in the wilderness or in the desert? Seems like Psalm 23, you want good shepherd, bring the sheep by where there's green grass, right? These shepherds seem stupid. They don't seem like good shepherds. What we learned was that sheep are very, very, very stupid, right? That's the first thing. The sheep are very, very stupid. And the problem is they don't stop eating. Oftentimes it happens that they will literally eat themselves to death. Their, their stomachs explode because they don't stop eating. It's a problem of appetite. The, the good shepherd controls and is attentive to their appetite, what they consume. Right? The father is attentive to our appetites. And he knows that we have gone astray, filling ourselves with so many things. It's so destructive. This is where we need healing. The whole of our relationship with Jesus is healing. I need to receive God's healing. All the places in me where God's love has not yet touched or redeemed, I need to receive healing. I need to receive healing in my identity. You've done bad things, but you are not a bad boy, right? All of the places and all of the ways in me, in you, where you still operate like an orphan, where you're still auditioning for God's love, where you're still thinking like the servant, that's where we need healing. And it's a lifelong journey. Okay, so for this last conference here, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, you call us sons, beloved sons. You love us. And you're so interested in our hearts. You are so interested in our healing. You want all of us to come into the light. Jesus, you say every part of you must be in the light as I am in the light. Every part of you must be in the light. And there are parts of us, parts of our hearts, parts of our past, parts of our story that just are still in the dark. Not because we're bad, but because we just don't know any different way. Father, show us a new way. Show us the way of the Son, a Son that trusts the love of the Father. A father who wants to give good gifts, a father who wants to speak, who wants to communicate. And for this final time, we entrust it all to you, Mary, placing it in your womb as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Joseph. John the Beloved, St. John Paul the Great, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, let's start with this notion, that, that you have a story. You have a story. In fact, you are a story. Like your whole life up to this present moment is one incredible and complex story. This is why we love stories, that we are the narrative creature. Aristotle said we're the rational animal. Other philosophers have said other things, but I I love the idea that we are a 
we are the creature of the story because we live as a story. We're the protagonist of our own story. There are minor characters in your story. There's major characters in your story. There's, there's characters who've come on the stage for a time being, and there's characters who've left the stage. There's, there's plot. There's drama. There's mystery in these stories. There's high points and low points. And in your story, there's things that have happened to you, things that you have suffered, and things that you have done, that all of it combines to answer the question, who am I? Who am I? Where is my place? Am I capable? Am I good? And the absolutely incredible and staggering thing is that God looks at all of it, like every part of your life, God looks at all of it and says, I am fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by it. You heard in that Father's love letter, you hear God say this, every hair on your head is numbered. Have you ever paused to consider what a stupid thing to know? Like, what a, what a totally unnecessary thing for God to know. And yet, here he is saying, I know it. This is a God who, who knows every, like, carved feature of your fingerprints. This is a God who knows everything about you. I'm fascinated in everything. And we think, like, how could that possibly be? There's just no way. There's got to be stuff that God says, all right, Tim, seriously, like you were five years old. Like it was, it was a blanket. You left at the park. Get over it, man. Like just like move on. Or like Patrick, like, like just spare me the details. Just give me the gist. Like give me the yada, yada, yada version of it. Never. Like that's how we are. Oftentimes that's how we are. We have very limited patience for other people sharing laborious details of stories. Have you ever been stuck in a conversation where someone is just sharing like, like telling you every shade of every leaf of the tree that they were sitting beneath where the thing happened. You're like, I want to stab myself in the face with a soldering iron. Like, this is just, like, we don't have the patience for each other's stories, by and large. But God does. God does. Somehow we have a God who, in his love, is curious and attentive to every part of you. He wants you to know Love in every part of your story. Back to that image of the implements of the passion, Sistine Chapel, all of it being hauled up into glory. Between now and glory, between now and eternity, every part of you, if you're going to be in glory, every part of you has to come into the light. Every part. Everything. Every story, every, every painful thing, everywhere there, there, where there hasn't been love, God needs to put love. And he will between now and, and eternity. So that every memory that you have right now where there's, where there's just pain or where there's not love or where you just feel like, Ugh, I just wish that I could just wave that out of existence, every part will be touched by love. It will have to be, because God is love. And you don't get to plunge in the ocean of love if you're not capable of that yet. So I, I want to show you two clips from a movie that uh, 
at some point, if you want to go home and watch a movie and, and, you know, have a box of tissues and just cry as a man, this is a, this is, it's not Braveheart, it's not Hacksaw Ridge, it's not Saving Private Ryan, it's this movie, <laughs> believe it or not. Okay, anybody see this movie before? Taylor, you're my man. All right. Back in 2000, Disney released this movie starring Bruce Willis, Disney's The Kid. Okay, so Bruce Willis plays this abrasive image consultant named Russ. And just a few days before Russ turns 40, some very strange things begin to happen in Russ's world. Some odd things begin to show up. And strangest of all is this little boy who suddenly shows up. This little chubby eight-year-old boy who shows up in his world. And he thinks initially that he's losing his mind. So he calls his shrink and all these things. And what he finally discovers is that this little boy, this eight-year-old boy, is not just some rando who's breaking into his house. This little boy, whose name is Rusty, is him as an eight-year-old showing up before, days before his 40th birthday. They've got the same name, same scars, same everything going on. And Russ begins to wonder, why are you here, right? That's the plot of the movie. What are you doing here? Why are you in my world, little boy? So he begins, eventually, at a certain point in the movie, he begins to engage him. He begins asking his younger self questions. He begins to engage him with, with kindness and immense curiosity. He's saying, tell me about it. I, 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 I want to know, I want to remember, because Russ, as this image consultant, has buried so much of his past with coping mechanisms and all these things. He's just shoved all the pain down, and he's forgotten. He's just forgotten. So this little boy shows up, and he's asking his younger self, remind me, tell me. He's engaging him. It's a powerful image of what I think the Father wants to do with us and what we need to do with our own hearts. Let's watch this for a second. something I think it might get you back to your time sure good anything about me yeah anything that'll take me back hmm. you know how I like to find caterpillars and put them in jars and feed them and watch them make cocoons And then one day, they break out and it's really cool. Mm, not a clue. But keep going. Tell me some more stuff. Remember last summer at Joseph's birthday party when I got Parmesan cheese stuck up my nose? Got any sixes? Nope. Go fish. Any fours? Negative. Go fish. Sevens? Tell me some more about that. Sometimes he lets me help him work on the car. But if I do something wrong, 
yells at me. Sometimes he buys me ice cream afterwards. But still, I don't like messing up. Like last week, I lost the screw. I was afraid to tell him. I found it later on in my pocket. Look, I still have it. to give them back to me. Got any nines? My homeroom teacher last year was fat Mrs. Tinkleman. She was so much better than Mr. Lupus. He had that purple bump on his face. I remember the bump, yeah. What grade was that? How come you're asking me all this stuff? I'm forgetting something. I'm forgetting this one event that meant something to me. And if I can remember that one thing, maybe I can get you home. Are you sure it's not the purple bump? It's not the bump, kid. It was a pretty big bump. Tell me more about second grade. Why? Nobody had a bump in second grade. My best friend was Tim Wheaton until a few months ago. Remember him? No, I don't. His house smells like fish sticks. No. Well, he was my best friend until we started hanging out with Vince and these other creepy guys. He threw a rock at me, and we haven't been friends since then. He threw a rock at us? Oh, uh, yeah. Why? What happened? Well, those guys get together every recess in the corner of the playground yard where they like to pick on kids. Back behind the kindergarten. Yeah, where the yard monitor can't see you. Where that big sliding board is? Yeah, the really huge one you're remembering. Go on, don't stop. There's four of them, and if they don't like you, they make your life a nightmare. <laughs> back to that. But what an image, right? The image of engaging this younger part of us with kindness and curiosity. Whereas typically, I think we, we, we belittle these parts of our hearts, and we judge these parts of our hearts, and we ignore these parts of our hearts. And God the Father the whole time is saying, no, 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 no. I love that part of your heart. I love that part of your heart. Like the Lord desires us to be whole, to experience, like I said, healing, receiving his love. And, and like all of that has to happen in these places where we haven't experienced it. This healing journey, when we think about our past, our hurts, our hearts, all of that, so often, especially as men, we think of it as a sort of search and destroy mission. <laughs> like, I'll find in my past this issue that I've been dealing with, and then I'll eliminate it, and I'll be good to go. The healing journey is not a search and destroy mission. Like, it's allowing the Lord to take us by the hand deeper and deeper and deeper in all the places where we didn't experience love, to experience in our hearts now what we were looking for then. 
I want to share a story. This is, uh, it's, a, it's someone I've been walking with for a while, and it's a story I have with his permission to share. I'm just kind of editing some of the details a little bit. So this individual that I've been walking with, this individual, he was an only child until he was about seven years old. His mom worked out, his mom worked one day out of the house, and she was more or less a stay-at-home mom, and his dad, his dad had this pretty powerful sales job, and he traveled a lot for work. Anyway, this little boy was his parents, his parents' whole world for the first six plus years of his life, right? Every birthday, every Christmas, every Halloween, every weekend, everything. He was the center of their world. And then everything changes. He's told that he's going to be a big brother, which complex emotions. I mean, how does a six and a half year old really process that another little baby's coming along the way? How do you really process that as a six and a half year old? You don't really. You're excited, sure, but you're totally unclear of all of that, all of what that's going to mean. You don't have the maturity to process the, the implications of what that's going to mean. Your heart's going to feel things that your head doesn't yet understand. That's what happened. So he shared with me the story of his dad walking with him through the hospital to go meet his baby brother for the first time. He shared how they stopped at this little gift shop in the hospital. And how he, his dad, he's picked out a little teddy bear for his brother. And his dad had these balloons holding his dad's hand. And they're walking through the hallway. He's sharing all of these memories. And he remembers, he said, he, he remembers the enthusiasm his dad had that day. That was the thing that stood out. As he was sharing this memory, there's this sort of twinge of pain that comes up. And he shares, I, I don't remember my dad ever being that excited or excited like that towards me. Now, is that true? <laughs> Probably not. Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because that's what that little heart's reality was. He couldn't possibly have remembered his dad at his own birth. He couldn't possibly have remembered those years of his dad sacrificing, working, putting food on the table for his family, providing all these things. He couldn't possibly have remembered all of that. All that he knew, all that his little heart knew at that moment is that this is a level of excitement that I've never seen in my dad. And it's not about me. It's about my new little baby brother. That's what his heart felt. That's what his heart knew. He shared what it was like to enter into that hospital room and to see his mom sitting up there in the bed, and she's holding the little baby. And I asked him, what, what is most striking about this moment? Like, what's standing out in this memory as you allow yourself to go back there? And he said this, that she's not looking at me anymore that she's looking at him. And I asked, what does that feel like? Just as you're sitting there going back through this memory, what does that feel like? He said, it feels like being displaced. It's not rejected. It's not replaced. It's displaced. Like there I was in the center of the circle. And all of a sudden, I'm now slid off to the side. And as he and I sat and processed through that, it, be, it became clear that it was from this place, this memory, that he internally began to believe, like, I can lose the look of love. Like, love is fragile. 
and it's not permanent. And his heart began to ask this question, like, what do I have to do to earn their attention again? Six and a half years old. Again, not exactly on the conscious level, but deep in the heart. What do I have to do to get them to look at me again? For my mom to look at me like that? For my dad to be excited about me like this? So what does that look like almost three decades later? It looks like this. A young man who is deeply self-sufficient, deeply insecure, who's always evaluating other people according to their gifts and talents, figuring out where he stacks up in relation to them, feeling like he never measures up, feeling like everything is a competition for attention and love and praise, that he's always in this competition. And he feels this incessant pressure to perform well and to earn approval. Again, all of this deeply in a, a deeply unconscious level of the heart. And he looks to every male, adult male in his world, as a sort of surrogate father, hoping to receive from that man the blessing that he wished that he got from his own dad. Tell me that I'm good. See me. Tell me that I matter. Tell me that I have what it takes. Tell me that I, I'm, I'm the center of somebody's attention. Because at six and a half years old, at seven years old, I lost the attention. I lost the focus. So as he and I prayed together, I shared this with him. And this was revolutionary for me, and I want to share this with you. Our God is outside of space and time. Our God is outside of space and time. And as, as God outside of space and time, God is eternally present to every moment in time. He's eternally present to every moment of your story, which means this. That at that time, when you experienced that thing that was hard, there was actually love waiting for you that you couldn't see, or you didn't have access to the Father's heart for you there. But he wants to go back and give you something there and then that you didn't have access to then. Again, back to that quote from Gaudi Metzpez. When man plunges into his heart, he plunges into the depths of reality. This is not fantasy. This is reality. Being in touch with God in these places. So as, as he and I prayed, just prayed simply this, Holy Spirit, take me back there now and reveal to me where is your heart waiting for me? That's what we prayed. Lord, take me back there now and show me where your heart is waiting for me there. And as he and I did that, he shared how he was back in the hallway walking. Same teddy bear in the hand, balloons holding his dad's hand. All of the things were the same. But as he said, as he walked through the hallway, something was different. That outside the hospital room, there was this assembly, this gathering of angels and saints. They were waiting for him there. Sort of welcoming committee. In particular, St. Joseph was there. And he shared this. As, the, as this prayer experience kept unfolding... St. Joseph approached his dad, and we'll just call him Mark. He approached his dad, Mark, and said, Mark, why don't you head on inside? I'm going to have a moment with my boy. And St. Joseph pulled this little boy off to the side, and they sat down. And Joseph pulls him in, gives him this big hug, and is just holding his cheeks and looking at him, big smile on his face. So proud that this moment is about to happen. You're about to meet your little brother. God is entrusting you with a great responsibility. 
And then he said this, that Joseph had next to him this pie. It was an apple pie. He said, I love apple pie. God knows our loves. He knows our hearts. There was an apple pie. And there was these slices of the pie. And he began to dish out these slices. And Joseph said to him, he said, love is not like this pie. When I give a piece to this person, I give a piece to this person, there's less pie. That's not what love is like. And in this beautifully simple way, Joseph began to explain to this little boy in his heart, in his memory, in his imagination, that love multiplies, that you're not going to lose anything. I said, what happens next? He says, Joseph brings me into the room, and I'm there at the same spot, looking at my mom, looking as she's looking at the baby. I said, what's different? He said, Mary's just behind my mom. And I said, where is she looking? He said, she's looking right at me. And where's Joseph? Looking right at me. And where are the angels and saints? Looking right at me. This was powerful. This was so powerful. This unbelievably healing for this, this man's heart. That his heart needed to receive love right at the place where he didn't receive it before. Like the father pours love into pain. That's how, that's how God heals our wounds. He doesn't just simply suture them up and say, just be on your way. No, he puts love in the place where there wasn't love. A healed memory is not a memory that has just disappeared. A healed memory is a memory that now there's love in the place where there was pain before. Where when I think back on that, I can only think now of how I've been loved by God there. And again, God who's outside of time, God who is outside of time can do an infinite number of things to those moments of our lives that to us just feel that's locked in the past. That's, that's past. No, God can do things. He can literally change things in your present by journeying with you in your heart to your past. But never go in without him. Because if you do, you're going to fall into all sorts of painful things. You want to let love meet you in your pain. I'll show you another scene here from the kid. So Russ, you saw in that, the end of that clip, Russ thinks that the reason why little Rusty's back is that because on his eighth birthday, he got in a fight on the playground. And when he was eight years old, he got creamed in this fight. And he thinks, okay, I'm going to help my younger self beat the crap out of these three bullies, right? That's what he thinks. He thinks my job is to coach my younger self in this playground fight. And he does. He coaches his younger self in this fight, and he does fine. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Rusty, as the scene progresses, he's pulled into the principal's office, and his mom comes to pick him up. And as you see his mom come into the office, you can see that she's clearly weak and tired. She's clearly sick. So she takes Rusty home. His dad greets them outside, brings mom very carefully back inside the house, tells Rusty to wait outside. Wait there. And that's what, this is what happens next.
birthday. Did I do it? No. No, you didn't do it. It's not your fault. Dad was just saying those things because he's scared. Because he knows that he has to raise you alone. He doesn't know how to do it. up again. Come. I just figured out where I got that twitch from. Somebody called the way ambulance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gonna need him now, huh? Powerful. <clears throat> Do you notice the, the tenderness that he received versus the harshness from his father? Some people are really, there's been some voices that have been really critical within the church of all this conversation and discussion of healing. <clears throat> that this is just psychologizing the gospel, psychologizing Christianity. I think that's a really protracted, narrow view of things. And just so off base. Like, do you really suppose that the God who is love, the God who was attentive to things as severe as Lazarus dead in the tomb and things as minuscule as Simon's mother-in-law having a fever, like he was attentive to every human pain, do you think that that God who is love, when, he, when we stand before him and we say, like, God, this sucked, <laughs> That he just is going to go, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. But did you, 
Did you worship me? Did you, were you good? Did you pray your rosary? No, the, the God who is love, he desires to heal and bless every part of you. Every single part. Brothers, love waits for us in our pain. The Father delights in us, and he desires that we receive deeply from his heart. 